Hello, it's the Dave and Josh show. How are we doing today, Josh? I mean, it could be a little bit better, given we've had such good weather and now we just have this this shitty weather. Yeah, just I know. cloudy, it's raining, been really windy. Big, yeah, we've got a big storm called uh, Storm Francis or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Blowing through last night, it was just pretty pretty windy, actually. We had to close all the windows and mm. David and me were freaking out. Because we realised that we might have left some windows open at home, but it was all okay in the end. <laughs> but today is also a very exciting day because today we also have our first guest on the show, hey? Yeah, first guest ever. Yeah, we're joined here with a man with many titles. Uh, he's known as an equity strategist, uh, a wine fanatic and teacher, a self-proclaimed bad cook, the flying Dutchman, and most recently an author to the book, Jakarta, a history of a misunderstood city. Welcome to the show, Harold. Hey, good, uh, good morning, uh, Dave and Josh. Good morning. Good morning. Thank more you for having me on the show. It's more afternoon for us, but uh, thanks. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but how are you doing? Where are you nowadays? I'm doing. I'm pre- I'm pretty good. I'm here in Hong Kong, and unlike you guys, uh, the weather here is fantastic. Clear blue skies, hot, warm. Yeah, much better. Thanks for uh, putting that into our face. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> good to hear. Well, um. We best get on to talk about the book. And the first question that we kind of have for you is, what is an equity strategist actually doing writing a book about Jakarta? Oh, that's a good question, actually. So, yes, my, my, my day job is an equity strategist. So I look at stock markets in Asia for a bank here and have to pick which one will go up and which one go down and stuff like that. It's got nothing to do with Jakarta whatsoever, with the exception that for business purposes, I got to go to Jakarta once in a while. But the reason for the book is absolutely not. Uh, I, uh, I lived in Jakarta for a long time. My wife is from Jakarta. Um, it's a city that most people that I meet say, oh, I don't really like it. There's big traffic jams. But actually, I really enjoy going there. So, uh, yeah, I always had a very different perception. And I was interested in its history because I'm Dutch. And well, if you go there, there's all kinds of things Dutch around, all buildings, etc. So I was interested in the city and I, and I liked its history. And at one point in time, I thought, I got to do some research and write a book about it because it was a hobby. Ah, so it's very interesting. Yeah, so your book is mainly about what what exactly, like stories in it or um, how, how do you write? Yeah, yeah. so um, writing the history of a city, you can do it in many ways. And one way to do it is to say that uh, city ABC grew uh, to so many people in this year and so many people in that year. And uh, the street, this and this uh, was built in this and this year. That's a bit boring, yeah, to be honest. So I thought mm-hmm. it, might, it might be more fun to write about individual people. Now, by accident, I actually discovered this was one of the reasons why I did it that way as well, that one of my great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, so we spent about a 10 uh, uh, generations, uh, used to live there. Oh. Um, so I went into the archives and actually found out some of my family members that lived there. So then you think, well, how would the city have been when these people walked around? Uh, I found out the first one that arrived was a lady called Barbara, and you wonder why she would have gone there, because at the time, Jakarta was called Batavia. It was basically kind of a frontier city, a wild west, mm. uh, uh, kind of a rough town. So why would she have gone there? So you, you wonder, well, how was that? And then you find some other people that are also vandalinders that also live there. You, yeah, you, you try to see how the city was at the time. And so you try to find the history, you could say, through individual stories of people. Now, it happens to be that some of my ancestors... Uh, had quite a uh, eventful life. Uh, I can tell you one or two stories, but 
some of them also not, so maybe sometimes for 100 years there was nothing exciting, but you find other people in the archives that, that did something. Somebody opened up a store, somebody was a bit of a Robin Hood, so the police was trying to catch this guy who stole from, 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 uh, from, from the Dutch hmm. and supposedly gave to the locals, but I'm not quite sure if he really did so. But So you can find stories in newspapers about all these people, and that's how the book came to be. So when did you actually realize that you were able to actually turn this into a book? Probably about three years ago, when I went into the archives and found a story of my, uh, as I said, my great-great-grandfather, right? And then you look a little bit more, and then you start to have some material, and then you think, well, actually, it's nice to put it together, but then it takes an awful lot of work just to do research. When, how did the city really look like? Can I find old maps? What stories were going around? You have to read about, yeah, uh, people who've done, historians who've done academic research on the city, or maybe old newspaper clippings or announcements that were made. So uh, there's a lot of research involved. It took me a couple of years to put it all together, actually. Yeah, you sound like you need a lot of passion for that kind of uh, project, you could say. <clears throat> it's not something you absolutely. do overnight. I, no, absolutely. I, I think if you write a book, you almost have to write it for yourself. If you're not passionate about it, then writing a book is a really, really tough process. <laughs> I can imagine so. So is that what you would think makes your book unique um, when you compare it to other books about Jakarta? That it kind of has its own kind of stories and it's a kind of a, a mix of stories together rather than an academic sort of thing. Absolutely. So there are, um, there are books written about Jakarta, but they're very, very different. So in that sense, this book is, I believe, unique, right? Um, there is, for example, a guy who's written books and he's taken old postcards and pictures of, uh, of, of Batavia from, say, 1850 onwards or so and, and, and put that together. It's a beautiful coffee book, but it's not a history book of the whole city. There are academic papers that look into uh, the, the growth of the city, but that's more for academics, like what policies were implemented, mm. um, what was the impact on certain areas. And that's for academics interesting and for people who maybe have to design cities but not really for somebody who's a general reader like you and me and well the dave and joshua uh, listeners maybe as well um so yeah so you gotta think about what your what public as well so there is some stuff written about jakarta but i think this is quite different than anything else hmm. great i noticed um i noticed that you talk a little bit about uh flooding in jakarta because I, I know that flooding is a huge problem in jakarta because apparently it's sinking um so mm. what i'm wondering is in the book do you explain how to prevent it or do you explain uh how it has happened a little bit of both okay uh, it's not that the book is offering solutions like i'm not an engineer who says you got to do this this and this and the problem is solved but um you are right jakarta is flooding and with climate change it's probably one of the cities that is most at threat they're actually built a very large wall in front of jakarta which uh, Jakarta lies on the Java Sea. So there's a big wall in order to keep the sea out, but that's not a really a sustainable kind of strategy. No. The problem, to a large extent, is that there is no, and you can to a certain extent blame the Dutch actually for it, they never put water piping in the city. So most mm. people at their homes have their own pump that goes deep down in, into the soil and pumps water up. Now, if you, if you do that with millions and millions of households, it means you pump all the water underneath the city out. And that means that the soil starts to subside, it, it starts to crash. And if you build very heavy buildings and tall buildings on top of it, it pressures that easily down. So the city is literally sinking. 
Um, in addition to that, you got all kinds of rivers coming from volcanoes nearby that go to the Java Sea, and Jakarta is right in the middle there. So it's got to flow through Jakarta. So they try to bring it around Jakarta. Um, and this is nothing new. This, uh, I mean, flooding was an issue even before the Dutch came. The Dutch arrived, say, around, say, 1600s, built their own city there after they burned down what was there, mm. um, another city called Jayakarta, built up their own city there, Batavia. And they took the, the approach of building canals. And um, there are in the northern part of Jakarta still, you can see in the, in, the, in the grid of the city, where the canals have been. And some of the canals are actually still there. Now, that was helpful, but not completely successful either, because you've got to keep these canals uh, very clean. Yeah. Uh, they didn't always work out. So they had problems with that as well. But one of the solutions that Jakarta could think about is that instead of fighting the water and trying to keep it out of the city, why not build a lot of new canals, keep them very clean and try to direct the water in the right direction? And one of the comparisons I've made is actually with a city that's close to you guys, Rotterdam. Huh? In Rotterdam, they've done this as well. For example, uh, baseball and, and soccer ball courts inside the city, they've built them lower so that if the water really comes in and there is flooding, they can become kind of caption areas super large mm. pools if you want it that can be filled up and take the water uh, away from the streets but also direct some of the water to outer areas and, and 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 lakes that are surrounding rotterdam so that's maybe a solution that the city could look at but the, the core of the message is that this is nothing new flooding has always been a major issue for uh, for jakarta or batavia or whatever it was called in the past so with that in mind what is your view on uh, the indonesian government actually moving the capital per se like there i've heard they want to change it away from jakarta because of this yeah so the the problem with jakarta and this has always been the case with batavia as well is that it is a highly successful city most indonesians just want to go look for a job there um so they're continuously people arriving and this is again you go back a couple of hundred years in time this was already a problem at the time so the the infrastructure doesn't meet the, the needs of all these people. Mm. Um, so it should try to develop. Uh, of course, it needs to build up the infrastructure. We just spoke about this. Huh? Uh, and that's not just canals, but also roads and housing. But it also should develop other areas not too far away in, in Java or maybe outside of Java so that people don't go to Jakarta, but maybe find a job somewhere else. Mm. Um, and one way of doing that is to build another city. And some other countries have done that and that alleviates some of the pressure. So there's this talk about moving the capital to a new city in the uh, island of Kalimantan. That's about an hour and a half flight or two hours from, uh, from, from Jakarta. Um, um, that sounds very dramatic, as if you close down Jakarta, you move everybody over. But that's not really going to happen. Jakarta is a city is not just a bunch of buildings. It's also the people, the connections, the history, mm. the families that live there. And uh, they're not going to move to some other new place. So Jakarta will still be there, but you need to kind of alleviate the pressure on Jakarta. And by moving, uh, yeah, building another city where people might want to move to, yeah, you can you can maybe do so. So um, that's what they, I think that's what they try to do. So do you think they've taken a somewhat similar approach to, or they should take a somewhat similar approach to China and that they just have a load of different cities where they can kind of actually move more of the population because it's so concentrated currently? Yeah, well, in China, actually, the population is somewhat concentrated on the eastern seaboard as well. Um, but in, in, in Indonesia, it's really concentrated in West Java and, and Jakarta. 
um, give or take one out of 10 Indonesians lives in what is called Greater Jakarta and makes a living there. Um, so, yeah, um, what China has done, they've invested heavily in, in infrastructure, subways, roads, uh, canals in certain cases. And Indonesia need to do that as well. But it's, it's easier said than done. You need the money from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about a couple of thousand dollars. We're talking about billions of dollars of investments here. So um, th that these things take time. Yeah. How would um, how would the Indonesian government be able to retrieve that um, capital to actually build up the city or to avoid it from actually going under? Well, I think, first of all, you need a very good plan of what you're going to do. And I believe they have some plans, right? That involves building roads. They're building a subway now. Uh, I think that's a massive improvement. Um, they are building some canals. I think they can probably do more, but who am I to judge? Then you need to attract the money. And there's a couple of ways to do that. You could go to other governments and say, listen, you're very good in this. Can you help us? So the Japanese have said, listen, we're very good at making subways. And they've actually helped building that subway and provide some of the finance as well. It's kind of government to government or country to country relationships. Um, the Chinese have also offered a couple of things, amongst others, a, a high speed railway um, to be uh, to be constructed. So that's one way you go to other governments. And then the other thing is you go to you go to the markets, the financial market. You guys maybe save money. I don't know. I do save some money, have it in a bank and the bank can borrow that out again to uh, to some of these projects and say, listen, uh, we'll, we'll put some money into this. Um, so you've got to set up a structure whereby people would be interested to participate and finance these things and attract uh, money. But yeah, Jakarta just needs an awful lot of money, and um, th that's just just not easy. Uh, and these things simply take time. Building a subway takes years and years, right? So uh, uh, yeah, you've got to be a little bit patient with it. But it looks like they have the right plans in place. So you've discussed in your book about sort of the past of Jakarta and the experiences of Jakarta. What does the future of Jakarta actually look like? Um, yeah. So, I mean, 95% of the book is of course about this history and some of the stories in it. Right. Yeah. Um, but I'm actually quite optimistic about the future of Jakarta. And it's not that I have a crystal ball. I can say clearly this is going to happen. But one thing that strikes me, and, and this has gone through history, is that the people of Jakarta are extremely in, ingenious. They are, they are cr a creative bunch of people. Mm. They, uh, if there are floodings, you see uh, all kinds of uh, uh, new ideas sprouting up. I mean, simple ideas of children that, 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 that go swim in, in, in the floods and, and make boats. Um, I've seen delivery guys on, uh, on, on, on speedboats going around mm. instead of uh, motorcycles. Um, so that's another one. But also an interesting thing, for example, somebody's created an app whereby people can say what the flooding is in their street. And by putting that all together, they could actually make a kind of a real life situation of where the floods were in Jakarta. And that app was very useful, for example, to ambulance and police who needed to go somewhere and said, well, if we go there, this app tells us a lot of floodings that we should drive like this and this. So by actually combining that information, they were able to do something around it. So um, yeah, the people are very creative in many ways, not, not just in this, but also in music and in, in all kinds of other cultural things. So I think there's a lot of um, working together, creativeness in that city that somehow can be fostered and, and come together. And maybe this is the solution for the city that each individual household comes up with small ideas to do something, maybe cleaning the gutters or helping to make it slightly greener by planting some trees and things as such. And if millions of households do that, yeah, you make a much more livable and interesting city, I think. Hmm. It's interesting to know that um, it seems as if the community is kind of what is 
the potential for the city. Absolutely. Have I understood that? No, absolutely. So there is there is an architect in Java who's who's made a very nice example. He calls it Retjehan. Retjehan in Indonesia is small coin. So uh, you guys in Amsterdam maybe don't use coins anymore, but me in Hong Kong I still do so. <laughs> um, uh, and in, in, inadvertently, if you do a bit of shopping, you end up with small coins that you don't need. One small dollar or 50 cents or 10 cents and these kind of things, right? If you, you can throw that away and forget about it. But if you put it in a pot and you wait for five years, you actually have collected a lot of money. So small change, literally small change in this case, can in aggregate add up to large, large changes. And I think this is the, the approach for Jakarta, that everybody is doing something small. And maybe the government should also kind of mobilize that and give people ideas and, uh, and subsidize it so that people plant trees, um, clean the gutters nearby, uh, work together. And this is already happening, of course, in the city. But all these small changes together becomes, yeah, together a big change in, in the overall city. Could you say that your uh, your book could be a, like used as a tool for to ha- to help with the better city planning or create that community? Uh, I would say no. Mm. It's not a tool for better city planning because city planners need much more detail and other things. But what it can be, in a sense, is that if people read it and Jakarta's become aware that every each of them individually can contribute something small. And if everybody does that, you can actually make big changes in that city. Um, so maybe this book can help with the awareness of it. And the last chapter of the book actually goes into this, that, 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 that there is this. And, and this is something that can easily be adapted because helping together and working uh, together is, is something that is ingrained in Indonesian and Jakarta society. It's something called Gotten Royal. People help each other in the small kampung, the small uh, village or hamlet where mm. they live. And, uh, and, and if you give some ideas, like if you guys all would do this and this and this, and everybody does that, then, yeah, you can make these big changes, maybe um, come to fruition. Great. I mean, uh, one thing we also have, it's a slight change of topic, but still on the mm-hmm. book. Um, we noticed that you have put in some maps and photos. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about like why you chose to put in those maps and photos into your yep. book? So. I think uh, the book needed to be very approachable, but also if you talk about a city, you're talking about changes over time. And um, yeah, if you showed it in maps, uh, I, I like to do that, um, then that, that's actually quite, quite nice. So there's a guy in Australia who's a map maker who uh, helped me make those particular maps. And um, wow. so if you look at the individual maps over time, you can actually see how it was 400 years ago, how it then grew. So each map almost connects to each other um, to, to understand how the city uh, evolved over time. And the pictures are there to really, yeah, I mean, we talk about individual stories of people, I said, right? Um, so these pictures try to, yeah, put a face to those individual stories to some extent. You mentioned about individual stories. Um, what's personally your favorite story that you've written about in the book? Okay. So there's a couple of interesting stories, but I'll, my favorite, I'll tell you in a second. Uh, I mean, there's an interesting story because there's a guy who ran a shop about um, around 1811, and uh, it was just a time where the British invaded uh, uh, Java. So literally, the army w- was marching through the street where he had a shop. He's seen these things, but he also had to adapt his business afterwards um, when things changed. And we can see in advertisements in newspapers how this guy did that. So uh, that's the only thing we know about this guy, John Pondat, how the advertisements have changed over, say, a period of 25 years. So that was a nice story. But 
My real favorite story is something that happened only not too long ago, in 1975, when Deep Purple showed up in Jakarta. And when they showed up, um, they had a deal that they would do two concerts with maybe 25,000 people on it. Um, but the moment they landed, they already knew that they were in for a bit of a surprise because the moment they got out of the airport, they had to be brought to the hotel with tanks. True. There were so many people on the street. Holy shit. The first evening when they did their performance, um, instead of 25,000 people showing up with a ticket, there were over 100,000 thousand people showing up whoa um so yeah twenty five thousand can come in hundred thousand can't get in they get really angry so they started to burn down cars and stuff the police had to come in uh, the army had to come in <laughs> then during the night uh, in that evening they went to a very famous nightclub uh, probably made it very late uh, we don't even want to go into the details here um early in the morning had a major problem whereby they they said listen you sold many more tickets than, than you've told us. So we want to have part of the money. Uh, started to negotiate. Something went wrong. Somebody um, accidentally or whatever happened to fall into an elevator shaft. The police arrested some of the deep purple people. <laughs> in the morning, they were brought to court. They had to solve that problem in, in that particular morning. And we're, they're not even in Jakarta for 24 hours yet, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, they solved that then. The next evening, they had to go and perform again. But again, so many people had showed up that they wanted to come in that the police had to initially come in with Doberman, then told all Europeans, please leave. And then the army again had to come in because people were really angry that they couldn't get a ticket and started to burn down cars and shops and became a complete Jeez. disaster. <laughs> they couldn't finish it until uh, eventually they had to cut down the whole uh, thing short, went back to the nightclub and the next day they wanted to fly out of Jakarta and found that their plane, that the tires were, were flat. <laughs> so they had to actually pump up the tires <laughs> of their own plane and could leave. There's, I mean, there's more to the story. You can read about it. There's also a fantastic YouTube story uh, you can look up on it. It's, uh, but that's, that was probably my, uh, my favorite uh, historical story. Did they, <laughs> did they ever um, come back to Jakarta after that? Or were they just traumatized from that? Uh, I think they were traumatized <laughs> and uh, they didn't come back. But in 1993, another heavy metal band came in and it was Metallica. And again, mm. complete mayhem. And it's actually my brother-in-law, Uchu, who went to that concert. And I asked him once, he said, listen, you were there. Uh, there was a mess, right? Police and army and uh, cars burned down. And he had a cigarette. He always smokes. He had a cigarette in his mouth. He took a puff and he sat back and he says, Harold, that was chaos. That was chaos. <laughs> so, uh, fair enough. But Jakarta has become, in the meantime, heavy metal is so popular. It's the, probably the heavy metal capital of the world. Yeah. Uh, heavy metal is incredibly popular music there. Why, why would that be the case, actually? I, I, to be honest, I don't know. It's... It's somewhere uh, people love, and uh, yeah, sometimes you get these quirky things. Uh, certain cities are very good, and uh, but yeah, a lot of my friends, at least, they, they they love heavy metal, and not just the heavy, but the real, the heaviest of the heaviest metal in uh, in Jakarta. So it's it's just very popular. Even the president goes to uh, Metallica concerts. It's wow. uh, so popular it's there. Yeah, yeah. Damn. I did not know no. that. So well. If you want to read more, then you can read the book and more stories. Yeah. So actually, why <laughs> would good. anyone want to read the book? Like, what are your last comments on that? Okay. 
why would you want to read a book is, in my view, Jakarta is an absolutely fascinating city. There's, there's hardly any city like this on the planet. The people are super friendly. It is, it is, I love going there because if you're in the small alleys uh, inside the city, uh, and a large part of the city is just a labyrinth of small streets where there are shops and barbers and small mosques and badminton courts and people that make fried rice and all kinds of other food. Um, it's, it's, it's lively. It is, it, the people are friendly. It's very nice. But most people that go to Jakarta stay in a five-star or four-star hotel and, 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 and are in the center where the traffic is really bad. So their perception of the city is, is quite bad. But I think that's a misunderstanding of the city. You've got to go out of those areas and, 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 and go into those lively, we call them kampungs, those small alleys across the city and, and visit those and go out. And then your perception of the city will be very different. Mm. And that's the core message probably of the book. It's, it's a city that is misunderstood. It's, it's much nicer and more fun than people think it actually is. Well, I think uh, that wraps it up. Don't you think that, Josh? Yeah, I thought it was, uh, it was really good. And I, I definitely will be reading the book as soon yeah, as we get our copies copy. tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. I believe you guys are getting uh, copies. That is indeed correct. Perfect. We'll, be, be uh, we'll be reading that. But uh, Thank you very much. on that note, if you are interested in getting uh, Harold's book, it will be released on the 4th of September 2020 on Amazon Singapore. Hopefully worldwide, depending on the whole corona situation, if I'm not mistaken. Um. But that's correct. Anything you want to add, uh, Harold? No, that's correct. Uh, the fastest way to buy it is on Amazon.sg, uh, but it will be available on Amazon.com in UK as well. Um, depending on how quickly shipments, I mean, container ships are full these days with Corona. Um, as soon as they get them, they will sell them as well. But uh, yeah, please take a look at it. Thank you very much for your time, Harold. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, likewise, we'll catch you and you guys next time. See ya. Catch you next time. Thank you.